0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week, I'm joined by John Reese, who is the co-owner and co-founder of Black Radish Creamery, which is a cheese manufacturer here in Alexandria, Ohio, which is about 30 minutes east of the 270 loop, which surrounds the downtown area of Columbus, Ohio. John and his wife, Anne originally founded it when they were in New York uh, working, and we kind of get into that whole story. Some people might kind of already know some of it, but the company was founded off of this kind of Preserve uh, that they wanted to have at their wedding, and for a long time, number of years, like six years or so, they were called Black Radish Creamery, but they had no cheese. So it took that long to get everything set up and running. And then once they got everything good to go, everything in place, and they started making cheese, kind of off to the races. So their main, you know, location is in the North Market downtown, and then they obviously have their manufacturing facility. And right around the corner from their manufacturing facility is kind of a grab-and-go market. So they basically took this pretty big shed, revamped it, renovated it, made it super nice inside, and they have kind of a lot of different local produce and stuff like that, and different items in there. And you kind of come in there, and if there's something that you want, you grab it, and then you leave, you know, money in the drop box or or run your card uh, through the scanner that they have up. So we kind of talk about that aspect too, as well, and kind of that technology and how that's coming into the world too. So is. Super interesting conversation, super educational too. I think... You know, a lot of people, we all think that we know a lot about cheese. You know, it seems simple on the surface, you know, different types and whatnot. But then when you talk to somebody who lives, breathes, and eats cheese all the time and their life revolves around cheese and making cheese, then you realize you don't know anywhere near as much as you thought you did. So John goes into breaking down different types, how it's made, the scientific aspects too of it that come into play, why fattier milk is needed and, and what that kind of translates to different types of cheese. So, you know, if you have an interest in cheese or never really knew too much about it and just kind of surface level knowledge, this will get you to a whole nother level that you weren't at before and probably never thought that you would wind up being at, which is kind of the knowledge that he brings to this podcast uh, in this episode. So you can follow them on Instagram at Black Radish Creamery. You can also visit their website too as well. Uh, they got more information there. But the cool thing about to their North Market location is they essentially have cheesemongers that work there, but you could almost call them cheese sommeliers. So what you can do is, you know, if you're putting together a charcuterie board or getting cheese for a gift or whatever... You can talk to the people that are there behind the counter and be like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for something like this. I'm looking for something like that with this flavor profile or this texture. Or you can even just you know, be like, what would you recommend? What's good right now? What are you guys? And they'll recommend as much as you want, You know, different styles, different types, what to use to assemble. You know, If you want a three cheese board or if you're looking for five cheeses or how many people that you're having and, and how much cheese you need. So they're super knowledgeable, super informative, super helpful, and everybody is always been just nice and goes above and beyond anything that you would ever expect, you know, when asking questions about cheese. And there really are, you know, no stupid questions. I know that's like a cliche thing, but there really aren't any there with those folks. So it's always an awesome time when you get to... Go down there and see everything that they have and the new stuff and try and pick out, you know, kind of what you're trying to assemble and and everything, and always always seem to kind of learn something new uh, from them. So you can follow us on Instagram too as well. We're at Spoon Mob, we're on a bunch of other social media too as well. You can find us there, either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One. Make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We got all the different links to all the different episodes, different profiles, some news updates uh, included in everybody's profile. If there's been something that's some new restaurant that they opened or something like that, or they won an award or anything since they've been on the podcast, we put that in their bio too as well. So we're always keeping that up to date. Make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. New episodes drop on Thursdays at 1 a.m. We also drop them on YouTube a week later. Basically, it's just different metric systems, um, so that's why we kind of keep them separate there. If uh, YouTube's your preferred player, you only have to wait a week for it to hit, but um, we're on all the other podcast apps as soon as uh, 1 a.m. on Thursday rolls around, new episode drops. So if you follow, hit the follow or subscribe button, depending on what player you use, new episodes will automatically download into your device, phone, computer, whatever, and that way as soon as you open up the app, Uh, It's right there, ready to go for you. So make sure to also, you know, check out the website and there's a contact uh, portal box there so you can write in questions, comments, feedback. You can also email us directly, spoonmom at yahoo.com for anything too, as well. We take listener questions that we incorporate into future interviews and and episodes too. So um, we always try and have some stuff ready to go and and we'll let you know as soon as your question is going to come up on an episode like when the kind of what day that's going to air and everything so you can make sure that you tune in but without any further delay here is my conversation with John Reese the co-owner and co-founder of Black Radish Creamery here in Columbus Ohio well well, thanks again for coming on the podcast taking some time out of your your Monday here Uh, I know you guys are pretty busy uh, with everything that you got going on Black Radish Creamery is probably, I'd probably say most known cheese producer uh, in the Columbus area. I would think, I mean, you guys got the, the stall at the North Market downtown, which is huge and expansive. There's a bunch of different cheeses, you know, centrally located and everything like that. That's kind of where we first, you know, encountered you guys. And then obviously some different offshoots and and stuff like that. So I want to get into Black Radish and your setup and everything too. But I mean, I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get involved with cheese? Was that something you originally wanted to
1: get involved with? Was that like a family thing? It all started in the summer of 97 when I got fired from Walmart. In high school, the first job that I wasn't fired from was uh, called Chalet in the Valley. Um, So for anybody in Ohio that's familiar with baby Swiss cheese, Gugasburgs are the ones that make baby Swiss cheese. And they had a restaurant called Chalet in the Valley. And that was the first restaurant I worked at. And I started to fall in love with cheese a little bit then. But obviously, my view of cheese was very narrow at that point. But that was the beginning seeds of food. That was the beginning seeds of cheese and just kind of that, I don't know, just food service, hospitality and everything. Fast forward several years, early 20s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then I was like, oh, got to stop doing that. Um, Started getting myself together. And I started going to Columbus State. Uh, I was pre-nursing at Columbus State. And then I transferred over to Ohio State and uh, finished all my pre-nursing, was accepted to nursing school there. And then I actually ended up switching to business. And this does all come back around to cheese, I promise. And uh, while I was in uh, business at Ohio State, I met my now wife, Anne. She was smart. She did college. She went four years and that was it. Uh, She graduated with a photography degree uh, from CCAD her focus, what she really loved was food photography. So how we really bonded and spent our evenings and spent our time together was cooking and taking pictures. It was usually like watch Alton Brown because that, that science nut in me was just, all about why, not how, but why. So we'd watch Alton Brown, we'd cook something, she'd take pictures. And looking back on some of those pictures, I mean, some of it was definitely like uh, poo-poo platters and yuck-yuck soup. But uh, there was a couple things that were okay. And without going too much into my family, going from a family that had always been blue-collar that was transitioning to white-collar with some success, my family never looked at me going into food because um, it's something that I always loved as a viable opportunity. Um, but during this time, you know, early to mid-20s, this would be about my mid-20s now. Anna and I we spent all this time cooking and stuff. And literally one day we're watching Alton Brown. And I'm like, you know, wouldn't it be fun if uh someday we open up just like a small little place for us? Uh, you know, just like breakfast, lunch, like a cafe or something. She's like, Why don't you do that now? You should just do it. And I'm like, you know what? Screw it, let's do it. Um, so from that conversation within six months, we had moved to New York. I was attending the Culinary Institute of America. And that was like just whole ham. I guess that would be a good pun. Whole ham right into food. Went to the CIA, blossomed even more. I mean, I was doing really good at Ohio State. When I got to the CIA, I mean, nothing could stop me. I was just kicking butt nonstop. I did the associates there. I did the bachelors there. And upon the last like six months uh, for my bachelors, I really wanted to get into more of the ingredient side of things, as opposed to the preparation kitchen side of things. And I really, really loved my time in the butcher class, you know, going to the butcher room and doing all that stuff. So for six months, I was down in the butcher and I was working for free. So like I would go to school all day long and then I would go down and I would assist there after school, just so I could assure that when I graduated, I get a job there. And so I was putting in work nonstop, day in, day out, day in, day out. And about two weeks before graduating with my bachelor's, um, I think I have this all wrapped up. Uh, The other TA says to me, hey, I feel bad. You keep coming down here. Did nobody tell you you didn't get the job? And I was like, what? And and again, at this point, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but just for like context here, like I was the bachelor speaker for my graduating class. Like, I mean, I was a really good student. I didn't have any issues with anybody. And so uh, I went up to HR. And I'm talking to HR, I'm like, so what's going on here? And they're like, well, you falsified your application. I said, I falsified my application, where at? And they said, uh, the part here where it said, have you ever been to prison? You said, no. And I'm like, I have never been to prison. Uh, so that's why I put no on there. And then they gave me the dates. And what it turned out was in my early 20s, I did go out, I had some drinks. I was driving home, spilled Chipotle all over myself, got pulled over and it was like a 0.09. I had one drink too many, um, but I didn't get a DUI or anything. I got a reckless op, And uh, one of the agreements was I go to like the weekend rehabilitation thing and they're held in like um, hotels or something like that. So I had to do the hotel thing. And uh, apparently the hotel thing does classify as prison. That's exactly the response I had. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? So I'm trying to tell him, I'm like, "Why well, didn't know that was prison. <laughs> like, I was in a hotel, but anyway- All of my plans that I've been making and spending time on all leading up to graduating from bachelors to further complicate things. My wife and at this point had started working at the CIA um, as one of their photographers. So we were just going to be one big, happy CIA family. You know, so two weeks before I'm graduating, I'm like, now what am I going to do with my life? And so I just started talking to a lot of different professors and everything. It was really interesting because a lot of different professors were all saying the word cheese to me. And I just kept hearing cheese, cheese, cheese. And It's funny because on hindsight, I found out one of them was actually saying cheesecake factory, but all I heard was cheese. I had a professor hook me up with a local cheese maker who was also a CIA grad. I started making cheese and it was like everything wrapped into one that I liked. It was, it was the science that I loved from early on, like when I was going to nursing school. It was the business portion of it. It was really physical uh, which is another thing I've always really enjoyed. And obviously it was very culinary based as well. So also at this time, I'm I'm 29. I'm like, I should probably pick something and stick with it. Um, so at that point, boom, I just committed to doing cheese. I just devoured everything I could cheese wise, education wise and coming out of school and you know, having the maturity to really know how to study, educate myself at that point, I was coming right off of that. So I just went right back into it. So I was going to New York City to do like connoisseur classes. Um, I was going all over the Hudson Valley. I was going up to the University of Vermont and doing certificate classes up there in cheese making, food safety, plant development, blah, 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 blah. That was the most uh, intense part right there was going to the University of Vermont. And then, um, yeah, shortly thereafter, it was moved back to Columbus and start working on building a creamery. And that gets us to about about the time I got back to Columbus and at least the, the solid, the hooks of cheese had totally got into me by that point. Going back a little bit. So when you were
0: going to Columbus State and Ohio State for nursing, what kind of led...
1: To you wanting to go down that kind of medical field? Was that family or were you just always interested in it? Just always interested. Ever since I was a little kid, I mean, somewhere between nine and probably 11, I asked for and I got uh, medical encyclopedias and I just read them, just always been turned on by the how of everything. How do things work? Why do things work? And I don't know, I just, For some reason, I just gravitated towards the human body and physiology and stuff like I just really enjoyed it. I don't think my family did any type of like, other than like buying me books, like I wasn't really introduced to any of it by my family. It's just kind of like a self thing, just naturally just curious about such things. i read at some point you were like flipping some houses. Yes, that was the transition between nursing and business. While I was in pre-nursing at Ohio State, I was starting to flip houses. And then when I... Was accepted into nursing school. It was, oh, do I stop flipping houses because I'm making some pretty good money now? <laughs> or, you know, go into nursing school, then oh, it's going to be a couple more years. Um, so at that point, I was like, eh, maybe I'll just do business and then I'll just continue to flip houses because this is working. So yeah, and that was uh, the house flipping. We ended up doing, at that point, we weren't too far into it, but I got two duplexes that were right next to each other and just, Everything ended up working. We ended up hitting a home run on both of them. Probably the right time to get out because a couple years later, the
0: housing market crashes. So, yeah. So, we dodged that bull a little bit. So, when you decide to go to the CIA, you're here in Columbus. Columbus State has a culinary program. You know, Chicago's not too far away. Pittsburgh's got some stuff too, as well. So, why the CIA?
1: Most of it was probably to get uh, the support of my family. Uh, well, and also at that point, let's see here, I'd probably been in college for five almost six years with no degree yet so i'm a very well-rounded person <laughs> a little bit of everything but at that point i really wanted to finish the bachelors i mean now you know this is you know 10 15 years later You know, the early 2000s, we were still like, you got to go to college, you got to get a bachelor's, you know, and now it's different. Now it's a little bit different. People realize that, you know, a bachelor's may not necessarily be the best way to go. But anyway, at that point, that's where we were. And my family was, these kids are going to college. And that's part of my family's success was being able to send their kids to college. So by going to the best school in the world for culinary, and one that also offers a bachelor's was... The best way that I saw to also have the support of my family, which, you know, in hindsight, I mean, they would have supported me anyway, but that definitely went into the decision making. And also it's, uh, you know, the hero's journey. You got to you got to go out. You got to go out. You got to leave the comfort of where you're at and you have to go out into the world. You have to take that adventure um, and then come back with those skills. And it's going to put you a lot farther in life. So just kind of all that put together. It was like, let's go. Do you think culinary school was worth it? for you
0: the part that you said that you know not getting the butcher job that sounds like they had to figure out some way to rule out somebody and it was like a very minor thing because defining the term prison versus jail are completely different like prison feels like a little bit more serious long-term thing it feels like a technicality thing that they were trying to rule somebody out on
1: you know, it totally wasn't technicality and that's why i was so blown away by it because i was on such good terms with everybody Except for HR, apparently. It is what it is. But other than that, if I had unlimited funds, I would just keep going back. It was the most amazing time. I loved every moment of it. I'm an extreme extrovert. So you put me around people where we're forced to communicate, like in a kitchen situation and going to culinary school there, everybody that's there loves what they're doing and wants to be there. You know, you go to Columbus State, you go to, you go to Ohio State, and it's not until like, you're in your end classes. And even at that point, you know, everybody that you're in class with might not be interested in what they're doing. Just being around so many people that just want to be there and just that enthusiasm, like, but also developing a lot of good habits, you know, additional study habits. Also starting to learn that I think one of the things that I like the most is just hospitality. I mean, I love to give hospitality And I could give hospitality in a number of different mediums. I could do it in cooking for people. I could do it in serving people. And now, you know, my medium is cheese, Um, you know, serving people through cheese. I think it really helped round me out as a person. I mean, we've made more than a couple jokes that had I stuck with like business and flipping houses, I mean, there's still a lot of emotional development that I did not have yet. So I'd probably be on my like my second or third marriage and have all kinds of issues and stuff like that. So I can't think of too many things that were a negative at all. After that, you kind of like you mentioned bounce around,
0: you do go to a cheesemaker, you do some work there, and then eventually you wind up at the University of Vermont and doing uh, the cheese making certificate. What all did that process entail? Was that super strenuous or what was the vibe with that?
1: It was definitely hands on. I mean, the people teaching it in the cheese world, uh, the general layperson might not know these people, but the people teaching this class are some of the the bastions of the cheese world. Now, it, I mean, it was it was really involved. I want to say like the the first certificate was a five week course, so I would go up for a week or two, knock out that chunk come back to uh, the Hudson Valley, then go up for another week or two, knock out that chunk. I mean, it wasn't like a two or three day intro. It was serious, hands on, you know, it wasn't quite, we're getting college credit for it, but it was way more than, hey, this is a weekend class on how to make cheese. You know, it was that perfect right in the middle, you know, the weekend class might be for uh, a cheese you know, enthusiast that's thinking about maybe doing something professional or just wants to do really good on their own. And then obviously getting a full-on degree is people that are gonna probably go into commodity cheese making. And this is it was a well, the the, the school at the University of Vermont was called the Vermont Institute for Artisanal Cheese, which unfortunately has now gone defunct because the secretary was embezzling money, but it was just for that perfect size, you know, we're not at-home cheesemakers but we need the ed- education but you know a lot of us had already gone through college we're not going to go to college again so it was just that perfect right in the middle and then they had additional classes that was like advanced cheese making where you go a little bit deeper and then they would specialize in particular cheeses like making cheddars or making alpines or making washrine cheeses and stuff like that
0: i'm assuming with like most certification organizations there's probably like five other levels that you could have gone to kind of you mentioned there if you wanted to but probably weren't really worth it
1: I mean, for me, every class that I could have taken was worth it. I wish I could have done more before they shut down and before we moved back to Columbus. Yeah, really, the next step up from that is a full-on dairy science degree, um, which would be like Cornell or University of Wisconsin, probably. So then you guys wind up
0: back in Columbus, you and Anne, and you start Black Radish Creamery, but it starts with preserves and not cheese.
1: Yes. The too long, didn't read, is... Building a cheese factory, whether it was in an existing building or a new building, whether we were going to take over an existing building or build from scratch, that was going to take a lot longer. I didn't want to get into like a different career while I was trying to get one building. I just wanted to go full into it. It just kind of happened by serendipity. So we moved back in 2011 and I made a fruit preserve that was based off a fruit preserve that Ann and I had on a road trip that we took when we lived in New York. The one that we got is just like local strawberries and vanilla beans. And we had that with uh, Nancy's Camembert from uh, Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company in New York on baguette. It was one of my best food and cheese memories ever, and and it was also the same for Anne. So we wanted to have something like that at our wedding. So we had that cheese, and I wanted to elevate that preserve. So I did you know a little more Ohio style. So I did strawberry rhubarb. I did vanilla bean and then I also did bougelet wine because it kind of perfectly marries the bright red fruits and the vanilla beans. So I'm like, this is just all going to go together. Great. So I made that and people just fell in love with it at our wedding. And I was actually asked to make more of it for another wedding. that was like a week or two later. So I was like, all right, so I'll do that. And they were kind of like, yeah, this is kind of working and the cheese is going to take a while. So I'm like, well, let's make a batch and we'll sell it at uh, Fourth Friday in Westerville at my sister's shop. Uh, at the time, my sister had a shop in Westerville. She's like, Yeah, come and set up. So I made a big batch of just that one flavor. And at the time, Bruno Mars song Billionaire was out and like it was just stuck on repeat in my brain. All of that preserve was billionaire. But uh, at that event, we sold like, I was like four or 500 bucks of just that one flavor of jam. I was like, Damn, we're onto something here. I'm like, well, let's do this while we're waiting. You know, because putting flavors together, especially with preserves, I don't know, this is like one of the things that I think coming out of culinary school, I just take for granted how... Much I learned and how second nature cooking and the reason of cooking and mixing flavors together became to me, it just became second nature to be able to do that with preserves. I already had like a thousand ideas in my head on what I could do with preserves. So I'm like, let's go out, let's get some local fruit. We'll make preserves, start hitting up farmer's markets uh, while we're working on the cheese thing. So we didn't want to do different businesses either. So we're like, we'll just start off you know, with what our business name is going to be and Black Radish Creamery came from. So if you remember back to when, you know, Anne was like, Hey, why don't you do this? And she was the first person to support my ambitions there. So her maiden name is Reddick, which is German for radish. Black part came in kind of like black sheep. We do things our own way. We kind of do things differently. And that's where black radish creamery came from. So we had a whole bunch of other names. was like, no, that perfect. Let's do it. Let's go with that. So we just went with black radish creamery and it was definitely a misnomer for about five, six, what would it be, six, almost seven years, something like that. We just kept saying the cheese is coming, the cheese is coming. It made sense to us, but I, how many times I had to explain to people, and I still do, it's like, like there's no radishes in it. There's no radishes in it. Like, there's no radishes in the cheese. People are like, radish cheese? I mean, I've had people walk by our farmer's market stand and go, radish cheese, and they just keep on walking. I'm like, it's too bad for them. They just missed
0: out. The preservatives that you guys do, like, that's all from Ohio, right? It's all pretty local.
1: The fruit. Yeah, we do the fruit. Um, we try to do the spices and stuff, but obviously like vanilla bean. So we always say like the star in the jar is always from Ohio. And the way that we make the preserves is different than you would get like commercial preserves, like off the back of the ball, the ball jar or the uh the sure gel box. Like our well, the way we do it is different. And then initially, in the very beginning, completely packed and free, which means we just cooked it down until it was thick enough that it would set up on its own financially as uh prices started going up and up and up you know we got to a point where we couldn't do that anymore so we actually did have to start putting some pectin in there um but still through all of it we always make sure after we reduce the fruit down fruit is still the number one ingredient over cane sugar we probably yield i did the math one time i mean it's like 30 to 40 percent less than what like a commercial version would yield you know, we we get from local farmers, which makes it more expensive. We reduce it down and we don't put as much sugar in it as, as a commercial version. So it does make like our stuff like way more expensive to circle around on that tangent. Yeah. All the fruit always from Ohio. And we thought about going outside of Ohio, with, especially like with cherries, because things were getting difficult. We're like, you know what, this is what we started on was just Ohio. So if cherries get frozen out or peaches get frozen out that year, there's a bad crop or something like that. We just won't make it. It is what it is. You know, truth in our ingredients. We always wanted to use the best ingredients you know, possible. So, you know, we never used beet sugar. We've always used cane sugar. We actually just switched to organic sugar. It's not really any more expensive than regular sugar uh, for us right now. You could polish a turd, but I always said just to start with good ingredients and let them taste good. Don't make them taste good. You know, you just do that through knowing how to pick good ingredients out, skipping over the bad stuff and just good cooking techniques. It seems simple. It's still simple in my mind. I'm sure you've gone out enough. You're like, how could they screw this up? But they did, you know, like you mentioned, it took about six years before
0: you guys started having cheese on the market. Why so long? What happens in that six years that takes to get to that point where you guys start having cheese?
1: Due diligence, due diligence, finding where we were going, talking to other cheesemakers, trying to figure out where we want to be. Um, So obviously, day one is not where we want to be five years, 10 years down the road. So, you know, one of the first buildings we looked at was probably half the size of the building we're in right now. And I mean, looking back on that, had we done that? Oh, shit that would have sucked. It would have sucked so bad. It would have sucked so bad. I can't can't even imagine trying to operate out of that building. So just really getting into, you know, beyond learning how to make cheese, you know, learning how to get the right equipment, talk to the right people, set up the right vendors, get the right property, position ourselves in the right spot, get the money to do it. 100% theory with no practice at all. I mean, I, I was making basement cheese and I worked with other cheese makers a little bit, but for the most part, everything was just theory. So our business plan had to have a ton of due diligence in it in order to make uh, any investors that we had you know, confident that we were going to be able to do what we were going to do. Yeah. It just took time. And then once we started building uh, it was November, 2015, we broke ground and our building wasn't supposed to take more than like six to eight months. It ended up taking almost a year and a half. Maybe it was 2014. I remember, yeah, it took like an extra year to build our building. So that also sucked and took a little extra time as well. And that was just the builder that we used. I don't know if they overpromised or they were kind of like, let's just say yes and figure it out on the way. And there was just so much stuff. It was like, oh, my God, why are you doing this? Why is this taking so long? Why did you say you could do this? Bah. Yeah, there was just a lot of intricacies and a lot of stuff that we learned. Like, man, I just wanted to make cheese, <laughs> you know, and I had to learn all this other shit.
0: But during that time, too, like you wind up kind of joining and being a member on the Ohio Cheese Guild. You know, you're a board member there. And you still serve on it. I think you were president for two years, too, as well. What exactly is the Ohio Cheese Guild?
1: So the main goal of the Ohio Cheese Guild is uh, the promotion of mostly the small cheesemaker, maker, um, but... Ohio cheese in general, there are other big uh, cheese organizations in Ohio that do support some of the larger people, but some of the, the smaller cheese makers, and again, I'm going to continuously go back to Guggersburg just because a big part of my heart lies with them, you know, they're big supporters of the Ohio cheese guild, and it's really tough, we've had a we've had a lot of challenges reaching um, a critical mass and, you know, getting events going and stuff like that, because we, there, there are no paid positions at the Ohio cheese guild. Everything is a hundred percent volunteer and we're all extremely busy. We have some people that are milking the same cows that where they're making cheese. I mean that whoever does that, they're either a saint or just full-on batshit crazy because that is so much work to milk clean, make cheese clean, milk clean all in a day. It's absolutely nuts. You know, what we're trying to do with the Ohio Cheese Guild, ideally, you know, say like within the next five years, it'd be great to have a large cheese festival, you know, just for Ohio, maybe regional cheesemakers if that's what we need to do. But supporting cheesemakers through... Um, different deals that help us in our businesses, you know, like shipping, partnerships with uh, the American Dairy Association, um, additional advertising. Uh, Every year we like to do one more professional like class where like, like someone like me would go to, to help with their technical skills. We'd set that like creamy, creamery and then also doing one that's maybe geared more towards the enthusiast. So a lot of it does have to do with increasing the quality, the safety and the visibility of small cheesemakers in Ohio. That's probably the easiest way to sum it up.
0: So finally like I think it's 2016 you guys opened the shop in the North Market, right? October, yep. How did that opportunity come about? Was that something that you guys targeted or just kind of happen organically?
1: Yeah, it's definitely organic. Yeah. How that came about was it, it really came from sitting around a campfire or a fire pit in our neighborhood with some neighbors just shooting the shit, drinking some beers. We were, you know, at this point, what would that have been? That would have been 2014, 2015, probably 2015 when we started talking about that. And one of the guys we were talking to knew Rick, uh, the director down at the North Market. And and it wasn't like Anne and I were talking shit or anything about Mike uh, down at Curds and Way. Uh, we we just saw that there was definitely the time was right for an update, um, for uh, new energy to go into the cheese, the place down there at the at the North Market. And Mike from Curds and Way, he had been down there for I mean I want to say at that point for like twenty five years, something like that. From talking with him, we knew that it was starting to become a challenge for him as well. You know, Ann and I, at this point, we were just making preserves and planning our building. So we still had free time. We're like, I think we we could do that. We could do that. And then we also had uh, our friend, Brian Schlotter, who at the time was with his family's farm, Canal Junction. Um, who is now with a really big company called Fromagex And Brian has gone on to do absolutely amazing things uh, in the cheese world. But having Brian, me, and Ann is all we really needed to start up a cheese shop. And so he was like the first person we reached out to. And we're like, if we can get Brian in on this, I think we could do a cheese shop. We put together a plan, submitted it to the North market. And the North market was like, yeah, we like that. I'm like, all right, let's do it. So, and at that time it was a lot of just, Hey, if there's an opportunity, let's just say yes to it. Let's just, you know, keep saying yes. And that's what we just kept doing. We just kept saying yes, kept saying yes. So yeah, October, 2016, um, we opened up and we did a really quick opening, um, we cleaned out stuff that we knew we weren't going to use. And uh, I mean, if you ever see pictures of our first setup there, you see like this white beadboard behind us, you know, as walls, which was literally just wire shelving with beadboard zip tied to it. I mean, it was just all fake, all fake. We we're like, let's just get in there. It's October. The holidays are coming. Let's not mess around. Let's get in there and just start selling cheese. And then I think it was like March, the, the following March, we hopped out of that spot went over to where I believe it was Pam's Popcorn. Um, she had just recently vacated the North Market. So we took over her spot with our temporary stuff, which was easy because again, it was just wire shelving and beadboard. So we just moved it all over and we renovated our spot and reopened it up early 2017. And then like a month or two later, we did our first batch of cheese. It was a complete and total shit show disaster. But I mean, that's to be expected. <laughs> So once you guys start coming online, making cheese,
0: was it more of a joy or relief at that point? Like finally, like we're at this point where we're making cheese, where you're happy to just be actually doing it?
1: Or were you like, finally, like we don't have to deal with any more construction. We don't have to do a permitting or anything like that. It was was definitely all of the above. I mean, it was at that point we'd been working on it for like six, seven years. I mean, I've got video and pictures of the first time milk came into the vat. And you can just see how excited, I mean, we've got that, the new business glow, you know, no gray hairs, nothing, which I shaved for this, but yeah, we definitely had the new business glow where we had no idea how much shit was just going to rain down on us. I, that's just the challenges of having business. But yeah, it was, it was really exciting. There was just so many moments I remember as we were getting started up, like, as one of our uh, aging vaults, as I like to call them, as one of our aging vaults started to get populated, uh, I would walk in there one day and it would smell like one thing. And then the next day it would smell completely different, like just all these different microbes in the building just getting itself figured out, like the building starting to like, know, like for lack of a better term, like the building was kind of going through its own cheese puberty, you know, like getting populated with its own bacteria that's going to end up being uh, prevalent for the rest of the life of the building and, and just getting everything figured out. I mean, I loved it. It was definitely a good time and I, and I still do love it. I mean, some of my favorite times that were like, uh, You know, if I have to work like we right now, we're still working like six days a week. But if I have to work like on a Sunday or if I'm at the creamery on a Saturday, instead of at the farmer's market or downtown, I'm here and I do strictly just stuff with the cheese. I'm not doing admin stuff. People aren't bugging me. People aren't calling. People aren't texting. Like, it's just, I'm just in there with the cheese. I'm like, and I, and I still to this day, I'll just look at the vat and I'll be like, all right, I'm 40. I'm a professional cheese maker. This is kind of cool. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, you know, all the admin and all the other office stuff and stuff breaking. That's, that's just a giant pain in the ass. But I'm like, this is pretty cool. I can't really complain that much about it. I mean, I always got something to talk about. We always know what we're bringing to a party. I mean, we never have to worry about that ever again. For me, the uh, the pros definitely still outweigh the cons for sure. So you mainly kind of work with, I think, Stonewall Dairy, right? Are they your milk supplier? It's just us and them. We actually now say that we are farmstead. So, and the difference between farmstead and artisanal. So, and I've talked to the people of American Cheese Society on this one to get further clarification, the governing body on artisan cheese, and they agree with me. A majority of them agree with me on this. So, traditionally, farmstead is the cows are on your farm, you milk them, you make cheese from them on your farm, and that's farmstead. But that is single source, single herd, and it's right there. So. The thought is, well, what if your farm is a half a mile down the road? What if your farm is 50 miles down the road, but you still adhere to one farm, one milk source, and that's the dedication. Uh, We've actually come together with Stonewall Dairy under one single LLC, which has also opened up uh, the ability to get different grants to help us out and stuff. But we have never taken a drop of milk from anybody else. And in the very beginning... Uh, Stonewall Dairy was still delivering some milk to, I believe it was Pearl Valley, Uh, but they were such a small producer. And at that point, that was when the dairy industry was really undergoing the beginnings of a really intense, what's the freaking word, where they're all just coming to uh, consolidation. So there was a big, intense consolidation of the dairy industry at that point. And anybody not being able to substantially fill like a whole milk truck was just kind of like dropped. So, I mean, it was almost any dairy farm that had less than a couple hundred, uh, cows, uh, they were just dropped and Stonewall dairy. They didn't have close to that. So they were about ready to be dropped from the people that they had been selling milk to for a long time. And it was just a financial decision. It was nothing personal. Um, but we came in at that time and it was like just the perfect marriage, uh, their farm. It's it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's basically two gigantic gently sloping hills. Um, and it's, I would say probably about 20 to 30% wooded. So it's not just like cows out getting bleached by the sun all day long, it's fairly natural. we've developed the fields with different fencing so we can rotate the cows through different fields. So the grasses have time to rejuvenate. Uh, we've started to work with uh, an Ayrshire breeder who's working on bringing back the breed to its standards like pre 1960. That breeder has actually gotten semen straws from like 1959. So some serious vintage semen. So we're working with some really, really interesting genetics in that regard. But uh, yeah, we've just been, uh, you know, kind of growing with them. And so for them, it was quite a step back because they were... They were milking Holsteins. They were just trying to do volume in order to keep up with what they were doing at that point. But you know, it was a big change, and it's kind of interesting because it also went from uh, Lewis Catlett Senior to Lewis Catlett Junior, who is now doing it. And it went from that more old school, you know, let's do Jerseys and Holsteins, let's get components and let's get volume, to you know, let's let's do smaller higher quality, higher components, healthier animals that are going to last a lot longer type thing. Over the years, yeah, it's been an interesting and slow transition, but uh, it's all been working out really, really well. And uh, we're now getting to the point where now we're starting to ramp up. Last couple of years, we'd be getting milk and, you know, if we're not buying milk from them, they're dumping it, which means they're just throwing money away. Um, And this kind of goes to COVID too. Uh, during COVID when sales really slumped, you know, we had to continue to buy milk from them. Otherwise they go under, if they go under, we go under, you know, they're like the linchpin of everything. I mean, there was, there was a long time where I was like, you know, if, if you dried up one or two cows, we don't have quite so much milk, that'd be fine. Um, but now it's like, we need to get some more cows. We need to get more milk. We need to, uh, we need to increase production, which is kind of exciting. Um, as of this last month, I've put a limit on customers. Like we can't take on any new customers yet until we start making cheese one more day out of the week. And, uh, that's something we're working with, uh, Louie, Louis Catlett, Jr. We call him Louie. We're working with him right now to, uh, to bring a couple more cows on while we're waiting for some other cows to finish their gestation and give birth. So Stonewall dairy, they've, they've been absolutely great. I mean, it's super important because
0: that's how you make cheese you need high quality milk. And from what I know, my limited knowledge on the dairy industry is Usually places like them, they're pretty sought after to be able to have a, a dedicated source of milk is a pretty unique thing where I think most other, you know, I mean, even if you look at local ice cream purveyors and stuff like that, like they've gone through, you know, four or five or they have three, four you five different you know, milk suppliers and stuff like that. So it's not normal to have a dedicated supplier.
1: It's not, it's, it's a very tough thing. Like everything just has to align for it to happen. Uh, and there's, there was obviously a lot of times when we were paying more than what we could afford, um, you know, in order to, to keep that going. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough gig. It's a tough gig, but I mean, we pay them. Well, I mean, now that we're all one business, but essentially we pay over double the market rate um, for the milk than what they were uh, previously getting anyway. But yeah. And, you know, in dairy, it's, you know, you, you either make the most or you make the best, you know. And as far as the life of the cows go, you know, and this is why artisan cheese costs so much more too, you know. It's a horrible example, but it's it, it does get to the point of it. So if you were a cannibal, right, would you want somebody that eats McDonald's all the time or somebody that has a natural diet, you know. So like with cows, really high production cows, commodity milk, that is like grain Silage, very grain silage heavy. Those cows are producing to the max, and they only produce for, I believe, only like two years or something like that, and maybe three years. But the second their production drops off, they get shipped off. Somebody uses them as beef or something like that. Our cows, they're living in the natural. They're out, eat their own grass and stuff. And now everybody's like, "Oh, I want 100% grass. I want 100% grass." Well, if you talk to any woman who has ever breastfed, I'm sure they will be able to. Uh, back me up here. That is a very caloric, intense activity. Now imagine producing, you know, like a hundred pounds of milk every single day. It, it is better for the cows to get a little bit of grain, you know, like when they're in the, when they're in the parlor getting milked and stuff, you know, as a supplement to their natural diet, it is healthier for them. You know, they're getting the calories they they need. And we work with a dietician to make sure that our cows are getting the right amount of vitamins and minerals and proteins and stuff in that little bit of extra grain that we give them. You got to start off with good milk. If we had normal commodity milk and we were working in a pretty sterile environment, somebody else can make the exact same cheese, you know, but with the milk that we get, the quality that we get and the environment that we make it in, I could give my recipe to somebody else and they're never going to be able to replicate the cheese that we make. It's just absolutely impossible. There's just way too many variables, but, uh, Yeah. yeah. just like with, uh, you know, the preserves, it's, you know, start off with good ingredients and let it taste good. So I was
0: reading some interview or article way back when you guys had like 18 acres that were untouched, but you had them earmarked for something. I assumed that it was going to be possibly if you wound up like raising cattle, but obviously you don't have to do that. And you kind of hinted at that was something you never really wanted to do in the first place anyways. But now you're kind of involved in it, but like it's not your day to day. So like you get kind of the best of, oh, I
1: can go over here and check this out, but I'm not like stuck over here. What's the 18 acres for? Partly investment. The 18 acres, if something happened with Stonewall Dairy, could we put cows here? Yeah, we probably could. But again, to be a dairyman or a dairy person, to raise cows properly, to take care of them, to, to, it's, just, it's just way too much. Like to know how to do all that stuff. Like I just I don't want that in my brain. I want to understand the process so I have an informed decision and I can make better decisions about the quality of the milk and have conversations with louie about the milk and everything but yeah i did That is just one thing too many and anybody who does both things is either a genius or batshit crazy <laughs> you know being able to do both but the 18 acres uh so right now we have our production facility on our 18 acres it's uh out near granville we're in granville township our mailing out address is Alexandria, just to make things as confusing as possible. But with these 18 acres right now, we do have a farm store out here. So just a little self-serve thing so people can come out. Uh, I mean, we have local meats. We have our cheeses, obviously. Some other local things and some of our favorites from our shop downtown. But the plan for the 18 acres, the next step is to put up some proper fencing. And then that way, some of the cows that... Once they have finished a lactation cycle, we give them a break. We'll bring them out here to the creamery and let them, you know, just relax out here. And that also takes additional uh, pressure off of the fields where our milking cows are. Um, So it's going to be like, you know, a a stop off point. uh, And we'll probably only keep cows here. Uh, while the temperatures are favorable, once we get into like winter, we'll take them back out there that way. If they want to be in the barn, they can be in the barn. And then if we're talking like, like full goal here, we definitely want to make like a full store out here. And we've got some drawings done with that where kind of, we set it into the side of a hill and you start getting kind of that cheese cellar vibe. And then the back portion of our property, we have like this really, really just gorgeous natural amphitheater shape in it so long term we would like to have an event space there um increased aging rooms there like built in um if we do it kind of in steps one thing i was thinking is you know we set up an area with like a stage some different like fire pits and then we could have like you know movies that are open to the public you know so like vintage movie nights and stuff And people can rent a fire pit, have small events like that, maybe have a food truck here and then build like an event space. We have an idea for another artisanal product that would be created from our leftover whey production, but I should probably just keep that under wraps and just leave it as a little dangler right there. Quick walkthrough of cheese making process. You
0: get the milk. How does it become cheese?
1: Let's do a cheese called a tome, which is if you're familiar with beer, it's like a Saison. It's just the seasonal cheese that you're making, original recipe, the most basic type of cheese you can make, even more basic than cheddar. So milk comes in. We heat the milk up to probably about 90 degrees, give or take a little bit. We put cultures in it to start the fermentation process. Um, Once we know the fermentation process is started, we put rennet in. We like to use traditional rennet. We feel that traditional rennet over longer aged cheeses has a better benefit than using uh, bacterial derived rennet. So we still use traditional rennet, but we put that rennet in, it does this little enzymatic activity. And basically the whole entire vat of milk now becomes an entire vat of milk jello. I mean, it just looks like, and it has the texture of panna cotta after about 30 minutes. I mean, it's just like solid milk jello. And then at that point we take, uh, they're called curd knives or curd hearts. Just imagine this a long wire. It's it's probably got, you know, a couple dozen wires running up and down. And then we have a second one that has a whole bunch of wires running back and forth. So what we do is we run that through this jello. We run it long ways and then we grab the other wire and we run it sideways and we run it sideways. And in the end, you're cutting it and you're cutting a whole bunch of pieces, you know, like this, anywhere from like the size of a pea to like the size of like a hazelnut, something like that. So you have a whole bunch of these little cubes. But what that does is it starts to separate the fat and the protein from the whey, which is going to be the more moisture part. This is where the, the process of separating the curds from the whey starts. So we start to stir it, which also helps to get the whey out of all those little pieces. And then we start to heat it up, which makes those little pieces firm up and also expels more whey. So this is how we control the amount of moisture in the, chi- in the final cheese. So now we're looking at the vat. It's stirring. It almost looks like chicken noodle soup, you know, because the whey itself, you know, has a really nice yellow color to it. And then the curds, you know, are more white, almost kind of looks like the noodles, but they're, you know, more like chunks than they are noodles. And then at that point, very simply, once the whey and the curds get to a certain pH and a certain firmness and a certain texture, we take those and we put them into what we call a hoop. And the hoop is the the mold, not like not like the mold that grows on something, but like the form that is gonna give the cheese its final shape. So we put all the curds into that form and then we put that into a press and that pushes all those little individual curds into one cohesive mass, which you know is gonna look like a wheel of cheese at the end of the day. But uh it it presses, it's and at this point it's still continuing to ferment and then once it has pressed for a certain period of time once its ph is where we want it and it is fermented as far as we want it to go we'll take that wheel throw it into a saturated brine solution usually for like 36 to 48 hours it, it reduces in temperature at that point so the fermentation starts to stop it starts to get it takes on all of its salt that it's going to have for the rest of its life so that also helps to arrest the fermentation so we don't go too far on the fermentation and then after that wheel comes out of the brine we just kind of we just put it on a rack and just kind of let it dry out for a couple days and then at that point, You know, and this is what uh, a green cheese is. So, if you've ever heard the expression green cheese, you know, the moon, they're like, uh, if you people are like, oh, the moon's made out of cheese. But if you really go back to the origins of people saying that, is the moon is made out of green cheese because it looked like a fresh cheese that just came out of those hoops. So, at this point, we have what is called quote unquote a green cheese and we can raise it a thousand different ways. We can wash the outside of it and develop like a funky rind that will help develop some of the flavors on the interior we can just let the outside just go and just get moldy and we keep patting down the molds and it'll develop like a nice hard exterior that way but then the most important part after this process is all of those cultures all those bacteria um, they all have enzymes in them and these enzymes break down the fats and the and the uh the proteins in the cheese and as those larger Protein and fat molecules get smaller and smaller and smaller. We as humans are able to experience them more and more and more. And the perfect example of this is the quote unquote little salty crystals you get in some cheeses. So now... I know this is how it works in my brain. I don't know if it works this way in everybody else's brain, but before I knew what those were, I'm like, oh, I love those little salty bites. I love those little salty bites, but I always had this little thing in the back of my head, like, where the hell do you get salt that tastes that good? Like, I know it's not salt, but I don't have a better term for it. And it turns out what all those little bits are, are tyrosine crystals. And tyrosine is an amino acid. You put a lot of amino acids together and you get a strand of protein taking that in reverse. All those proteins get broken down into these individual amino acids. And in the case of tyrosine, they start to coalesce together and actually crystallize in concentrated clumps. The aging of cheeses is all about the slow enzymatic activity uh, on proteins and fats. But that's cheesemaking in a nutshell. So is that why you want milk with a higher fat content to get more flavor or is it just easier to separate? It depends. So there's all kinds of things that go into play here. The size of the fat molecule, you know, like uh, we use Ayrshire cows, which have a naturally smaller fat molecule, whereas other cows have larger fat molecules. So that means that if we are making a cheese that is going to break down more of the fats, the enzymes are going to have more surface area in which to act on those fats, because for the same amount of fat, we have more surface area because we have a smaller fat globule. We don't necessarily always want the main flavor profile of the cheese to be from the breakdown of fats. So a good way to express this to uh, all the listeners is a fat flavor profile is something you definitely find a lot in sheep's milk and uh, goat's milk. And the easiest one is think about Pecorino. I'm pretty sure almost everybody has had Pecorino and it always hits the sides of your tongue, kind of like, a, you know, like it gives you this, this zing on the side sides of your tongue, which is different than say the sharpness in cheddar. You know, sharpness in cheddar is almost like a, a middle palate thing. Whereas the, the quote unquote sharpness in Pecorino is the sides of your tongue. That sensation explicitly is called piquancy. And that is from butyric acid. So as these fats break down, portion of it breaks down into butyric acid and a little bit of that butyric acid gives you that delicious piquancy. too much. And you're chewing on something that tastes like baby vomit. You have to be careful with how much fat you break down. We have a cheese called shenanigans and we only make it in the winter and winter milk cheese usually has a higher fat content because at this point the cows are eating dry grass and they're, uh, getting, um, you know, like their their little dose of grain, but the dry grass compared to fresh grass is much more concentrated. So instead of having all the moisture from fresh grass, there's no moisture. Plus, the feed is concentrated, so we're getting much higher fat contents in the winter. So I wanted to make a cheese in the winter from winter milk that was based off of a fat profile, piquancy. So we made this cheese called Shenanigans. And the first couple of times I made it, the enzyme that I used to bring out that piquancy way too much. It was nasty. It was like, you know, America's playing some videos where the person's holding their baby and the baby goes right in their mouth. I mean, it was that, it was so bad, but we got it under control. I brought it down. So there's just a little bit of development of that. And then we also have uh like a perceived sweetness that comes out in it as well. A bigger nutshell on the breakdown of fats in cheese by John Reese. And you guys have, I think, a couple of
0: cheese caves on your property, right? What exactly is the purpose of a cheese cave? And are there different types of cheese caves? Or is a cheese cave essentially a cheese cave? Oh, there's
1: all kinds. So it is a little play on words. So in French, it's cave, which is just an aging room. So we don't actually have a room in ground that we would call a cave. Um, that is the five to 10 year plan, hopefully. As far as these rooms go, and we do we do call them caves or coves. I personally call them vaults because they are literally money in the bank. I mean, it is just, I got cheese in there for over a year. It's just like, oh man, I hope nothing happens to it. Yes, definitely different rooms. So we have two different rooms right now. There's about 15 more rooms I want, but room number one is our super clean room. I mean, we always keep all the floors and everything clean. But this room, we do not let any extraneous molds ever take root. And the cheeses that go into this room always stay clean. So by that, I mean, that room, we do our camembert style. So uh, if anybody's not familiar with camembert, very similar to brie, so that white fluffy exterior, we don't want any random molds. Nobody wants to look at their camembert and go, what's that black spot? We also have our wash drying cheeses. So when we make our camembert, uh, we actually take usually about half the batch and then we just start washing it with, uh, seek no Furthers hard cider. It's a local cidery here in Granville, uh, and a little bit of sea salt. And then the other, ha- other ones, we don't do anything to those ones turn into our camembert called Bankston. And then the ones we've they're called Piacetti. It's like, uh. If anybody saw that movie when we were younger, uh, twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, like the washed ones, Danny DeVito, and the unwashed ones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, just twins separated at birth. But we're always washing the washed rind ones. And the thing about washed rind cheeses is they have a much higher propensity for uh, contamination. So if you don't have very clean practices, those those are some of the cheeses that might get some type of contamination. And so we keep that on a lockdown. You know, anybody that goes in there, what clothes they're wearing, everything, Um, but also our reclet. So again, that room stays extremely clean and all the cheeses in there stay extremely clean, either through washing or just keeping the environment absolutely spotless. And the environment in that room, I believe we have it about 52 to 53 degrees right now, but we need to keep 98% humidity in there. Which is definitely a challenge to have that low of a temperature, but also keep the humidity up. So we have like a little steam generator in there that's that blows steam and then the air conditioner kicks on and then the steam kicks on and just kind of did all day long. So room number two is our naturally rounded room. We're a little bit more liberal with our, I don't want to say we're more liberal with our cleaning practices because again, I, and I can get to the root of my paranoia in food safety. We always make sure things are food safe. So, I cannot stress that enough, but this other room, we have our naturally rinded cheeses, our cloth-bound cheddars. And in that room, we let the molds do what they wanna do. And by letting a mold grow on the outside of a cheese, we tamp it down, it grows back. We tamp it down, it grows back. But over time, eventually you just get this layer of dead mold on the outside of the cheese, which creates a natural rind, which no longer mold can get to the cheese. So now we actually have a nice sealed cheese in which the interior of the cheese can continue to develop without any, worry about getting infected from the outside world, Uh, but also having naturally rinded cheeses as opposed to, say, like a commodity cheddar or commodity Swiss that's aged in plastic. It is allowed to release moisture. So uh, any of our naturally rinded cheeses, if you look at them from the side and you look towards the rind, you can definitely see a gradient. One of the most uh, striking cheeses that we have in that regard, it was modeled after a red Lester and we call it bandit red and we put a whole bunch of annatto seed extract which gives it, its color into that one and it is a cheddar and this one once it starts hitting about eight nine months if you look at it it just has this beautiful dark orange going into like pumpkin orange hue going from the rind working its way in. it's really really neat but uh that room we're probably about 89 to 92 percent humidity And probably about fifty-five to fifty-seven degrees. And this is also a good time to like let people know. I mean, if you buy cheese and you don't get home for a couple hours, as long as it's not sitting like in like a ninety-degree car or something like that, like that cheese has lived in a room that's almost sixty degrees for sometimes years, and it's just fine. How far can you
0: push the aging of a cheese? You know, like there's people that do stuff with dry aging steak where. It's a similar process where it's you're letting mold grow, creates flavor profile. There's people that get really far out with it, like 200 days and stuff like that. But I mean, those are extremes. How far can you push like a cheese?
1: It all depends on day number one. How much moisture do you drive out of that curd before you turn it into a green cheese? Um, that's the first thing. So our raclette, higher moisture. I mean, anything... With higher moisture, it's just going to have more available water to have enzymatic activities, and eventually, it's going to break down into nothing. That's one challenge. So, if you look at Parmigiano Reggiano, when they're doing that, the was it be step three when they're cutting the curd and separating the curds from the whey? Parmigiano Reggiano, instead of doing like hazelnut to almost marble-sized curds, they break that thing down into like rice grains. So they are driving all the moisture out of there, and they cook it to a lot higher temperature. So if you drive a lot of moisture out of there, well, first off, that cheese isn't going to be very good until you get to eight, nine, 10 months. If you take care of that cheese going down the road. So if you keep like, you know, I said, we're going to have mold on the outside of some of these cheeses. I mean, you could also do like butter on the outside of the cheeses. You could do oil on the outside of the cheeses and you can continue to wash the outside of the cheeses, just to present like moisture at the surface. If you take care, that exterior of that cheese, and you prevent further drying out by either putting some moisture on the surface or putting like oil on the surface. Continuously putting oil on the surface, like what they would do in Parmigiano, uh, then you can age those things out for a very long time. And it would have been 2009 or 2010. It would have been 2010. I was in Italy for th- uh, three or four weeks with culinary school, and I saw a wheel of Parmigiano from 1981. So at that point what would that have been 30 some years something like that and it was because they were taking care of the outside of it i mean you can definitely push it in i mean some of these cheddar makers if you know the big commodity cheddar makers they've found cheddars in the back of a walk-in that have been there for 30 40 50 years and that's because you know they were wrapped in plastic and they're not losing any moisture so at the end of the day it comes down to How much moisture did you start with? How much moisture do you plan on losing throughout the process of it? And how do you mitigate losing too much moisture?
0: So I think for like about a a year, you guys had a second store at the other North Market in Dublin there and then decided ultimately to close. It was just too far from Granville.
1: The business plan just didn't work out there. Going into there... You know, we had decided to do it pre-COVID and what that operation was going to be was going to be a lot more like downtown. There was going to be obviously prepared food, but there was also going to be a lot more things that were going to make it a market where people would come and shop for groceries and stuff. And we were in a position to be able to stick with our decision and make it through that. And once COVID hit, the the first vendors that dropped out were the ones that were going to make it a market. And we were doing well enough. And we're like, we're going to do a smaller situation. There's going to be plenty of people living here we can still do this. Let's do it. So, you know, we, we continued on, uh, the reality of it is that place is just, it's, you know, it's just slowly turning more into a food hall. Um, I think there was, there was just a lot of mistakes overall. The situation for us definitely did not work out. The rent started going up and I'm, I'm assuming the developer of the building, cause this was, this wasn't just the North Market Development Authority, which is a nonprofit business incubator. This was the North Market and the developer Crawford Hoyne. Their projections were probably also pre-COVID and going through COVID, you know, it ended up, this is speculation. So I do not have any citations here, but, you know, it, it wasn't working for them. So, uh, you know, like our rent was about ready to double and it, it wasn't going to work for us to do that. And our business model just kept going more and more and more prepared food, which I love that. And if I wasn't so busy at the creamery, I would have been there rocking it out and we would have done a food thing. But we got to a point where it was either invest like another $20,000 and go full food and do barely any cheese or just get out of there. And at that point, you know, well, that's this year, the, the creamery, we've been, almost doubling sales year over year for about two or three years now. And our downtown store is doing absolutely great. We're going to have our best year ever down there. So we figured, you know, why do all of this work? Because I think, I mean, Ann and I were probably making like $2 an hour at the end of the day uh, for Dublin and it was so much work and there just wasn't any guarantees on what we were going to be paying there, and because we could never get more than a one-year lease, and it was—it just wasn't a good business decision all around. So we jumped. And you mentioned earlier, you guys
0: have a self-service store not too far over in Alexandria. How did that idea come about? Because that's pretty unique. Where it's. Kind of a standalone. I don't want to call it a shed because it's not a shed, but it, it is also a really well done, just the way it looks and, and everything too, as well. It's not just like a pop up stand, you know, on
1: the side of the road or anything like that. So, so what gave you guys kind of the idea to do that? Everything that we do, we'd rather not do it than do it wrong. We want to make sure it's done right and it has to be inviting. You know, just like with food, you always eat with your eyes first. We wanted to make sure that it was you know, something that when people came up to it, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to Instagram the shit out of this. You know, we wanted it to be, we wanted it to be nice. We wanted it to be inviting. We wanted it to be unique. But where it came from was, you know, our all the time that we spent in the Hudson Valley, just every other farmer had a farm stand like that. Um, some of them, it was just like, you know, like, we'll you'll see like, um, you know, somebody that has a backyard garden with, you know, maybe just like a little cart outside. But there were a lot of them in the Hudson Valley that were like our size or like, Um, and annex onto their barn. And they would do the same thing. Maybe it was, you know, pay yourself. Maybe they would have somebody there in the weekends We're like, Hey, it works for them. Why don't we do that? Yeah, we set it up. And the whole time we always had complete confidence that it it would work out and not having to staff it. I mean, we save, I mean, we're open seven days a week out there, not that I'm encouraging anybody to come and steal stuff from us. But I mean, if somebody stole a hundred dollars worth of stuff we would still end out ahead compared to having a you know somebody manning it all week long. We try to set it up as simple as possible in order to uh, check out, and uh, we've gotten even better as we've gone along. Uh, in the beginning, it, it was a little bit more difficult. Everybody would have to input all the prices individually, and there were some mistakes. It happens. We're all humans living a very human existence, but we now got it to the point where everything is just on a scan gun. So you just go in there and beep, 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 and just run your card or throw cash into the box. And for the most part, people usually don't have too many issues. And we just ask people to leave their contact information just in case something happens. We don't use it for marketing or anything like that. And periodically, we got to call people up and say, Hey, you know, sorry, it just didn't look like it went through or it looks, maybe you had some issues and this is where we're and nobody's ever had an issue with that. You know, we've got six cameras, you know, just we had a lot of cameras here just for food safety. You know, we wanted to make sure the building was secure. And plus there there can be times that we only have one or two people working out here and we want to make sure they stay safe as well. So we've always had a lot of cameras out here anyway. So I, we've never caught anybody blatantly stealing from it. And it's been running for, I mean, over two years now. Uh, we've had a couple people, you know, have mistakes or get confused with the process and walk off with stuff. But I think maybe only once or twice, we were never able to reach out, contact them and, uh, you know, get the payment in the end. And everything in there is local too, right? It's more locally focused than even our downtown store, but there's just not enough local stuff to keep it stocked. So we do get stuff that is not local in there. It's just some of our favorite stuff or stuff that just makes sense. Like, you know, you get some local greens around here. Sometimes we have some, sometimes we don't, but we'll have like vinegar in there or we'll have like some olive oil in there, you know, just kind of like some staples, Uh, you know, like the big ticket items beyond the cheese, um, you know, meat from our herd uh, eggs from our farmer, local produce when we can, which that's just kind of a tough sell. We don't, we haven't reached that critical mass of people coming all the time to have fresh produce all the time. So we kind of go in spurts, like pretty soon we're going to go get some mums and some pumpkins and see if we can drive a whole bunch of sales at once with those. Yeah. I wish we could do hundred percent all local stuff in there. We just wouldn't have enough room. There's just, there's too much local stuff that is too perishable for us to go through it in the right amount of time. But, you know, we try to keep it interesting and as local as Ohio, as we absolutely can. Do you think kind of like a self-service
0: situation like this is a business model be expanded upon? Like Amazon is tinkering with it, with their kind of personless grocery stores. You know, I think they have a few of them out in Seattle. You look at something like uh, community fridges that different cities have put in impoverished
1: areas, which are kind of a similar model.
0: This kind of something that could be expanded upon, is it something that you guys would want to expand upon?
1: I think so. You go to Kroger's, you do self-checkout. You're almost in that situation now. The difficulty is, and especially if you start talking about those impoverished areas and stuff. So, and that's, I mean, I could go off on a tangent on that. Is It's the cost of the equipment to do it. You know, we have a couple hurdles with ours. You know, you got to turn... Uh, the POS system on. You have to scan things yourself with a scanning gun. You do have to follow some instructions. So there's a couple more steps than say, going to the grocery store, but one of those grocery store checkouts, some things are pretty expensive. If you're talking about, you know, like impoverished areas with, with lower resources, like you don't want to see the people that have the least nutrient dense food, just getting more free shitty food, you know, it and I mean, it's, it's also hard to provide a ton of high quality ingredients, but, you know, if, if you're supplying higher quality ingredients to a situation like that, you're already cutting into some margins, which is going to make acquisition of equipment even more difficult. I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of going off on a tangent like that. I just I I want to see people get good, high quality food. Um, And that's one thing that I want to start doing is uh, I'm calling it curds for kids. I want to start working with school, school lunches and stuff for places, uh, you know, in Columbus that, you know, some of their students might not be getting enough protein, high quality protein. Maybe we can get them some cheddar curds. But going back to can this system work? I absolutely think it can Uh, some of the technology I think would make it the easiest is if you have an app, you check in as soon as you go to the store and then each item has a RFID. And so, I mean, you can just walk out of the store, all those RFIDs get scanned, bibbity bobbity boo. Everybody's good to go as, yeah, I mean, in any system, nothing's perfect. You know, there's a give and take in everything. So if you automate everything like that, what's the high school student going to do? You know, what's what's the unskilled laborer going to do? You know, um, I see a lot of grocery stores that work with uh, special needs people, and that's a really good position for them, too. So, oh God, I'm glad I'm not a politician and have to make decisions like that. Save some money, cost these jobs. You know, it's it's such a tough thing. It's such a tough There's a flip
0: side to everything, you know, flip side to every coin where, yeah, you know, this part expands, but then it's some jobs are going away, but they're lower paying jobs. But those jobs have been cut anyways because it's a big corporation and they're profit driven. So like you start going through all of it
1: for sure. For small producers like us, it, it does make sense because our margins are already so small and it's it's hard to hire that extra person. But if you're a large corporation and the only way you can eke out that one extra 0.1% of profit is by getting rid of all of your customer service, forward-facing people, I think there's a bigger issue there than... You know just trying to maximize profits
0: will you guys ever have a online shop or is just like the cost of shipping cheese just too high because i know like with shipping ice cream it's like ridiculous with the dry ice and everything
1: yes exactly so right now basically any state that's touching ohio we can ship ground and it'll be there tomorrow which is not a problem i mean yes uh you know you ship one pound of cheese you got like you know so many pounds of packaging with ice packs and everything so it definitely is a hurdle But what I always tell people, if you want cheese shipped and you don't mind paying for it, I will absolutely Mm -hmm. ship it. Um, Now, going to have it an online platform, uh, we got a grant uh, two years ago. We have one year left in this grant. And a large portion of this grant goes towards us developing an online uh, present, um, which will also work in, hopefully work in uh, cahoots with our downtown shop and our creamery. And at that point, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm all about shipping stuff and as much boxes, like refrigerated shipping boxes as we get, you know, we've got local people that give us their, their shipping boxes, like say they buy meat or something frozen. Like in all of the years, and granted, we don't ship a ton, but in all the years that we have been doing business, I have not purchased one single box. Uh, every single one has been reused, which is great. So it, it, that definitely helps keep the cost down. I mean, you're saving 10, 15 bucks on a shipment right there. So, I mean, if you only want, you know, $30, $40 worth of cheese, and you can save 10 or 15 bucks right there. That's a pretty big savings. We definitely want to, and there are definitely plans to develop that online presence. But I'm sure in the beginning, there's going to be uh, geographical considerations, and we'll probably just do regional. And then, you know, this is everything goes as you grow and your capacity grows, and we have more room within our margins. We'll, we'll definitely keep going for sure. What would you say the
0: most important part of the cheese making processes, is. Is ingredients,
1: cleanliness of the facility, cleanliness, it goes cleanliness, then the quality and cleanliness of the milk by far. Anybody who's a very experienced cheese enjoyer connoisseur, if they've ever had a goat cheese that tastes like a Billy goat's ball sack for the most part, like that is a perfect example of the milk is not clean. It doesn't mean it's like dangerously, like bacterially dangerous. It's just like if if like you're milking goats close to a billy goat, like you can just get that funk from that goat. Um, And there's a lot of cheeses that have barnyard notes in them and stuff. And that goes to the cleanliness of the cheese. But by far and away, for me, it is cleanliness. And I'll give you the story. So going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, when we talked about... When I sold that four or $500 worth of jam at the fourth Friday, the very first sample that I handed out was this lady and she just shoved it right in her kid's mouth that was sitting in a stroller. And I will never forget that moment because I was instantly like, somebody is always gonna give, and I get goosebumps just thinking about this because how serious it is. Somebody's always gonna give their food to like their little kid. Somebody's always gonna give my food to their grandma or the grandpa. And I do not ever want to be responsible for hurting that person. Taking something into your body is such a sign of trust. Um, and I don't think a lot of people really think about it, but once you meditated on it for a second, like when you receive something from somebody else and you put it into your body, I mean, that is just almost one of the most ultimate signs of trust. For me, making sure your stuff is clean and safe is the number one way to respect that trust. Now for the quality of the cheese, I mean, you still want to have it clean so you don't have off flavors, But then you start looking at, you know, technique, you know, your practices, you know, if you're going to make soup, you want to cook all of your ingredients in a certain order and you want to cook them all at a certain temperature to pull out all the flavors and not burn anything and make things correct. And that's just simple, good technique. And it's the same thing in cheese making. You just want to have good techniques. And again, broken record over here so we can let it taste good and we don't make it taste good. Is there
0: or has there ever been a cheese type or anything that either you've found super challenging or almost like too difficult to make? You haven't been able to get it right or it's so much of
1: a time investment that it just doesn't make sense? Mozzarella. Mozzarella is driving me nuts. Absolutely nuts. And I think I know why. It's just one of those things like the way that we're set up, I could probably make mozzarella curd, but I would have to make like... 200 pounds of it at a time. And I do not want to commit that much to it. So I'm trying to do smaller batches, but in doing these smaller batches, controlling the temperature and the acidification of the milk, whether we're adding acid or we're trying to ferment it, it's just, it's it's too wild. Um, and it just throws the proteins in the milk off and we can't get uh, a curd that stretches. So that one has been a pain in my butt. All the other cheeses that we've been working through, you know, just making sure that I mean, it all comes down to acidification, especially when you're talking about texture. Like, for instance, if we have a camembert, and if you think about a camembert or a brie, you have some of them that are very, very creamy, and you have some of them that are very, very chalky in the center. If you look at uh, Cowgirl Creamery, Mount Tam, you can usually find this in a lot of grocery stores around Columbus. That one is, I believe that's a triple cream. But when you cut that one open, the center looks a little bit chalky. And that is because it is a higher acid cheese. There's another cheese called daffinois. And that one is a double cream, but you cut that one open and it's almost like oozing. But the thing is, you can have not a double or a triple cream. You can have just a regular whole milk cheese and you can have it either chalky like that, or you can have it creamy like that. And it all depends on your acidification because the more we ferment, the more acidic that we make it, the more calcium comes out of it. And calcium is like cheese glue. If you think about like chev, you know, just basic chev, goat's milk cheese that you would get on a salad. It is like, uh, you know, kind of like chalky. It doesn't stretch at all. It just breaks. Um, that is a very acidic cheese. It has got a lot of calcium taken out of it. But if you think about mozzarella, you know, you can get this really nice long stretch, quite a bit higher pH on that one, much less acidity, much more calcium in that milk. Issues that we have pertaining to that which are our biggest hurdles nonstop is you know our milk is seasonal it's not standardized was it really really hot with no rain that's going to make the grass different the cows are going to be grouchy it, and that's going to change the composition of the milk from week to week you know was it did we get a ton of rain if you think about grass coming up at the beginning of the year it's uh you know if you've ever had really young like farmers market think about farmers market but really young lettuces at the beginning of the season they're like really sweet they have a lot of sugars in them compared to lettuces towards the end of the season they're darker green maybe a little bit more bitter so i mean just those changes in the cow's diet is going to change the amount of lactose in the milk which changes the amount of fuel that the bacteria have culture so if there's more lactose the same amount of culture is going to ferment farther and then you know if it's there's less lactose then it won't ferment as far so Controlling that fermentation and developing a consistent product is for us still quite a challenge. Uh, We're starting to get it nailed down more and more. But, you know, also just to let, you know, all the listeners in on this, when you're dealing with artisan cheese, it's think of it almost like wine, but every single cheese is vintage. It's not a blend, it's always vintage. So from year to year with wine, you know, you can have the exact same wine and you might get the same underlying notes from the grape, but the prevalence in which they come through, or you might get different notes because it was just a different year. It's going to be the same thing with cheese, but instead of year to year, we're talking week to week. When I make our Bankstons or actually when Eric makes them now, uh, when he makes the Bankstons this week, this batch might turn out different than next week's batch. And we do our absolute best to make sure that that final pH and how much moisture they lose is the same. You just don't catch it until it's already happened. So it's something that I hope anybody who enjoys artisanal cheese can embrace is the difference in cheeses from batch to batch. What's the cheese region or style that you kind of found yourself gravitating
0: towards You know, when you first start out? It kind of asks us to a lot of the small and wine professionals that come on the podcast, but there's always one wine or something that That's what got them hooked. So what was it for
1: you with cheese? Was there a certain type of cheese? Nancy's Camembert from Old Chatham. That was a big one. I did have a moment with mozzarella in Italy. That was a heck of a moment. Parmigiano, but I think one of the big ones was Cabot Clothbound from Jasper Hill. And this is, you know, back in the day Cabot Clothbound. I did not know cheddar could taste like that. And it just just blew my freaking mind and ever since i had that cheese i'm like i want to make something like this i want to make something like this and i still haven't developed anything close to that but i i have really enjoyed cheddars i've started to fall also fall more in love with these washed rind cheeses such as the raclette or the piacetti we do so not over the top funky but they do develop some funk and like our raclette has a nice sweetness to it so i don't know it's kind of like asking like what's your favorite kid you know if you got like three or four kids well when the first one came out that was your favorite and then the second one came out and you're like well this one was my favorite but i love this one too you know by the time you're on like your fourth or fifth kid you're like well kid number five is a little shit but you know so that's kind of how it ends up happening so for me i I, and i'm just i'm so freaking add i don't know whatever cheese i'm working on and it starts to turn out is what gets me excited but in the beginning it was definitely a Camembert style and Cabot bound. Is there a type of
0: cheese that hasn't caught on yet with kind of the general public that you think soon will? You know, I remember maybe it was about like six year, like Gorgonzola became really big for a minute. Like, you know, it's, you find out steaks and salads and all this stuff like randomly just it seemed like overnight. And that's kind of trailed off. Like, is there something, you know, that might
1: have a moment that you see kind of coming? It's a good question. Feta just had its moment. If anybody has TikTok or anything, that one went nuts. If anything, I would say it wouldn't be ah cheese, but just the habit of cheese in general. You know, my understanding, you know, it, it, a lot of cultures in Europe, you know, cheese is just part of a meal towards the end. So if you have just something a little bit sweet with that, you know, like some honey and like a bite of cheese, like, You're hitting sugars, fats, proteins. Your brain is like anything that you missed in your meal, boom, done. Just utilizing cheese in a normal everyday diet responsibly. So not like nachos and cheese, but like, you know, a couple bites of cheese, maybe a couple crackers, piece of fruit. Like as long as you're not gorging yourself on that stuff, like you can do that every day and get really good energy from it, really clean energy from it. Um, So like just the habit of having a little bit of cheese most days, I think that's something that I wish more people would catch on to. But then you got people that have all these allergies and stuff and so forth and so forth. And obviously some of them are full on intolerance and some of them are full on allergies, but also some of it is, uh, the quality of the cheese they're getting. Again, if, if these cows are, you know, living on concrete and they just pour the grain out and they eat the grain and then they do the milk and then all the poop is scraped off and they live in crap. I mean, that's going to pres- that's going to make, that is, that is milk. You have to make taste good. You don't let it taste good, if that makes sense. But let me think, I mean, raclette, people should eat more raclette because it's freaking amazing. Yeah. Gorgonzola is, I can't give you an excuse for any cheese. You name a cheese and I'll give you an excuse for it, (laughs) except for the maggot cheese. That shit's crazy. You supply a good amount of
0: restaurants locally, restaurants and chefs with cheese. Just recently, we were at Ginger Rabbit and they have a black radish creamy cheese plate on there. How do you determine who is worthy of partnering with? You only have so much resources, so much time. Do you have a vetting process or is just people kind of reach out? How do you just make those decisions?
1: We've been really fortunate. And, and a lot of this has to do with our shop downtown, giving us uh, visibility to the public because, you know, good chefs are going to search out good ingredients, which has made it really easy for us. Um, I think once, maybe twice, probably twice in the last couple of years, I've reached out to like a group of restaurants and that's it. Everybody keeps coming to us, but I'm not saying like, people are knocking the door down or anything like that but you know as we increase production we can bring on more people it's self-selecting for sure because like for instance our cheddar curds we have uh the brewery in granville uh like cheddar curds you know our wholesale price on that is is decent it's it's more expensive than like if somebody's buying cheddar curds from uh, the cisco truck for sure but i mean this restaurant they're going through 70 pounds 60, 70 pounds every single week. So they might not have huge margins, but it always sells. We call that a workhorse, not the highest margins, but it is always going to sell. With all of our other cheeses, the price on those, for instance, I've seen, and I'm not going to name the places in Ohio, but I've seen some cheesemakers in Ohio, and these are not artisan cheesemakers, sell cheese for like three, four, five bucks a pound. But what I wholesale to restaurants is more than double that, and this is what they were selling it. And in for retail, a restaurant that operates on lower margins, that you know is not as ingredient driven, they're just not going to be able to afford our product and still make money. Um, so it is kind of self-selecting. If there was a restaurant that you know had horrible hospitality or treated their staff not good, or you know just tried to say they used good ingredients and was like banking off the ignorance of the public. I don't know if I'd call them out on it or not. I mean, I'm not a total jerk, but I would forget to return their emails many, many times. <laughs> I mean, it, it just is what it is. And that's just my own personal ethos. I mean, uh, truth in food is kind of my own personal ethos. So If whoever we're working with does not have truth in food, then I I wouldn't want them to use my cheese. But uh, again, it's just the price of it. It ends up being self-selecting for the most part. Depends on the cheese. But just like little babies, they do not like to be wrapped in plastic. Uh, cheese (laughs) Cheese paper is the best way to do it. So like if you come to our shop and, you know, for all your listeners, you come to our shop, you buy a piece of cheese. If you want extra cheese paper, just ask one of our mongers, hey, can I get an extra slice of cheese paper with that, you know, to wrap stuff up? We also have cheese bags, which is just cheese paper in bag form. So it's easier, but not everybody has cheese paper laying around at home. So what I would say, this is my own personal um, practices at home is uh, wax paper or parchment paper, put that around the cheese. At that point, you could put the cheese like in a plastic bag, leave a little bit of air in there if you want. What's even better is uh, like I'll use like a uh, glass Tupperware, and and this is just to prevent too much moisture loss. All the way to when I was a real freak about it, I, it was about the size of a shoebox. It was a, a plastic tote about the size of a shoebox that I kept in my refrigerator. I'd wrap all my cheeses and keep all my cheeses in charcuterie in that. Probably the best way to store cheese for you know if you're gonna be holding onto that cheese for more than a couple days. Um, if you're going to eat that cheese in the next day or two, and just put it under a cloche and leave it out on the counter. Um, if it is a high moisture cheese and it's just going to gloop all over the place, again, it's going to self-select like, Hey, leave me in the fridge until you're ready to eat. Um, and then beyond that, you know, just to talk to people about when is cheese safe? When is cheese not safe? Like a vast majority of the time cheese is going to become unpalatable before it becomes unsafe. up until the point where cheese is completely fermented and salted, it can be very dangerous. But after that, once it has a low pH, it's acidic bacteria. Don't like that. It's salty bacteria. Don't like that. Um, so like if you get like mold on a cheese, like you'll see our cheese mongers, uh, we always, we call it facing. And it's just lightly scraping the surface of the cheese just to make sure that everybody that buys a, a piece of cheese gets, fresh everything is fresh right on the surface and then if you get a little bit of mold on hard cheeses you just shave that off um when in doubt throw it out but like if you have a cheese that is really high moisture and you're getting some molds and stuff on it i mean if it makes you nervous just throw it out but otherwise just cut around it um there is a saying uh the potter always drinks from the broken glass Cause they're always selling their good stuff. They're always going to drink from the, the broken. So the cheese monger always eats the expired cheese. Like our whole entire team and us, we live off of expired cheese. As soon as that cheese hits the expiration date, we're like, all right, anybody on the team that wants it, you can have it. We all eat it. You know, it's not like the expiration date is September 19th. And on September 20th, it's going to kill you. Um, what that is really is uh, the producer is like, we guarantee this cheese is going to be awesome up until that point, assuming that it has been taken care of through the chain of custody. It's going to be good up until then. But once you get to that point, we're not guaranteeing anything. That's how you store cheese and then some. All right. So you kind
0: of already mentioned it. You know, We've had a couple meat-specific people on the podcast that we've asked this question to assemble the ideal charcuterie board, three meats, three
1: cheeses. Yeah. It depends on how many people you have. So Our process is, what's the event? Who are you serving? Just general get-together. Do my friends get excited when they go to Costco and pick up cheese, or do they get excited when they get to go to a real cheese
0: counter? Both. They just enjoy cheese. You know, they'll dabble in a Lunchable.
1: There's nothing wrong. There's a time and place for a Lunchable. I lived off of Lunchables for a while. In a nutshell, you want to have a good variety, and you want it to make sense for your event. You know, if you're all going to be outside, everybody's going to be having a good time. There's not like a lot of other food and stuff. There's not utensils. You might not want to have like a goopy blue cheese and no crackers there. You know, like you don't want it to be a mess. So first you want it to make sense for the event that you're going to be at. And then you just want to do a variety. You don't want to go like cheddar, cheddar, cheddar. You know, you want to mix it up. Just think color texture and taste, you know, I mean, if you can get different colors, those are going to be different cheeses. And again, not yellow cheddar or natural cheddar and orange cheddar, you know, mix it up just as long as you're mixing it up. And you also want to think like you wouldn't necessarily want to do like an 18 month hard crunchy halda with a really good Parmigiano Reggiano, because those are going to be too close to each other. So just kind of think through that process. How are we going to offer the most variety? Think of your salt levels, you don't want to have a super salty cheese and then I have a super salty, you know, charcuterie and then have salt on salt on salt. You also kind of want to think through that. So what I would do if we're doing just three meats and three cheeses, I would try to make one cheese go with one meat, one cheese go with one meat, one cheese go with one meat. And then beyond that, if people want to mix and match and and try to discover other pairings, awesome. If not, no worries, you know, but again, uh, variety, variety. Don't overlap and uh, make it make sense, you know, to your, to your environment. What's next professionally for black radish creamy? Like what do you guys, you know, have on the horizon? Make cheese, sell cheese, make cheese, sell cheese. (laughs) Let's see. So we do want to get back into doing, you know, wine and beer and cheese tastings. That, That was an absolute blast. So, uh, as soon as our, our personal lives kind of settle down a little bit, our family had uh, aging parents and all, So as soon as we get some of this stuff under control, um, we're going to hopefully get those classes going again. Beyond that, a really big thing that's going to be happening really soon is just us going from making cheese two times a week to three times a week, which is a huge jump. Um, If you just kind of it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it was a huge jump. And that is going to allow us to do open ourselves up to a lot more customers in Columbus, because like I said, right now, I, I mean, I wish we could bring on more customers, but I would just be over promising and under delivering. And th- those are those are probably the two most immediate things that would be next um, developing. uh the tourism to the creamery as simple as it sounds, you know, some fences and some signage, maybe having some little events out here, stuff like that. Uh, and then again, uh, you know, five, 10 years, we'd like to start having events, you know, and build an event space out here at the creamery, expand the creamery, uh, put more aging rooms in. Back to that question earlier, I really want a drying room, which is like an intermediate room that the cheeses really like, the green cheeses. And I want to put in a blue room because I love blue cheese and I want to make blue cheese. Uh, but for the most part, if you put blue cheese in one of your rooms, you're just inviting trouble. So you kind of got to keep that segregated. We're going to be working on the website pretty soon through the the grants. Farmers markets are still going keep entering competitions, keep working on the quality of the milk, getting it better and better and better. Yeah. Just never standing still for the most part.
0: Last set of questions here. This question's left behind from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Chase Voles, who's the CDC at Blue Dorn in Houston, Texas. What is your favorite thing to eat on your days off? So I would say outside of cheese, favorite thing to eat.
1: That's a tough one. Am I cooking it or is somebody else cooking for me? I love it when people cook for me. It's absolutely great. Let's see here. This time of year, oh man, short ribs are delicious. One place that uh, Ann and I go to a lot, up in Sugar Creek, there's a pizza place called Park Street Pizza. I could eat that stuff all the time. If I had a day off, I would go up there and I would absolutely eat there anytime. Damn, this is just another one of those things that I could be like, you give me a dish and I'll give you an excuse why I want to eat it. But I mean, I do love pizza. I absolutely love, it. I love making my own pizza dough, start to finish, throw it on the stone. I'm going to go with pizza, good pizza, good pizza, not shit pizza, good pizza, pizza with good ingredients, treat it well. What's the question you want to ask the next guest? What meal would you want to have and who would you want to have it with that would mean the most to you? And now that meal could be cooked for you or you could cook it for somebody. But how do you have a meal that means the most to you?
0: So this question comes from one of our listeners. What cheese should everyone have in their fridge because of it? Not only its deliciousness, but its shelf life, universal application.
1: Probably Parmigiano. Beyond that, though, honestly, fresh cheddar curds. I mean, because fresh cheddar curds, when they're young, I mean, you can put them in anything. They make an awesome grilled cheese. It's just like a blank template. You can throw those on pizza, throw them in your eggs. As they get older, when you melt them, I mean, you can turn them into a sauce and they're usually, they're cheaper because there's no aging. They're just made and they're sold. So I would go cheddar curds or Parmigiano. All right. So this last set of questions we asked to everybody who comes on the podcast.
0: So nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far?
1: Probably Alton Brown. Just love that. I mean, I grew up with Mr. Wizard. I mean, if anybody over 40 remembers him, but uh, he's kind of like the Mr. Wizard, Bill Nye, the science guy of food. And I just, those are the shows I grew up watching. And then when I found that in food, I was like, ah. So I'm going to say that Alton Brown probably has the most impact, long lasting for sure. Then shock talk I got to throw that in there. What's
0: one thing you wouldn't fix in the production facility yourself?
1: When a compressor breaks, other than that, I've, pretty much fixed everything in here. Oh my god, I'm an amateur HVAC, amateur electrician, amateur this, amateur that, blah 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 blah. I have fixed so much crap out here. But hey, yeah, that's how you save the money. But uh yes, a compressor. I'm gonna let somebody else do that. What's a restaurant that you'd
0: recommend? You're not partnered with, you know, you don't have your ingredients. Uh, your cheeses on their menu or, you know, give me a a fellow uh, cheese operation uh, that you'd recommend that isn't black radish.
1: Oh, you can never go wrong with Chapman's. Chapman's is awesome. We all know that. Wolf's Ridge does a pretty darn good job for Ann and I though, like we're always so busy. We don't get to do those like special dinners very often. So like harvest, like I could eat harvest or like North star just about every day, like consistent with good ingredients all the time. Just boom, 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 boom. Good skillet. You can't go wrong with skillet too. I could go on and on and on, but cheese that is not us. Who do I really like? Tulip tree does a great job. Che- and this is another one. I could just probably go on for an hour. There's just so many good small cheese makers out there. Um, that do such a good job. I'm going to go with tulip tree in Indiana. I mean, good grief. Some of their cheeses are just absolutely delicious. A guy named uh, Fawn Schmidt. He's their cheese maker. Oh, Their double cream is envious. Wish I could do that. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure that one out. So let's go with them. Or if they're still up, Leland Al Cheese in Michigan, they make a amazing raclette. You can hardly get it outside of Traverse City. That one is definitely one worth searching out. Oddly enough, the wife and husband team there is also Ann and John, but um, we're not biased, but their cheese is oh, so good. Bucket list travel destination, bucket
0: list restaurant. So place you haven't been to that you still want to visit. Place you haven't eaten at yet, but you
1: still want to someday. You know, I don't keep up on it very much. Elena in Chicago. I think that would be a really neat experience. Um, I definitely want to do that. I have a lot of people that I graduated with that are doing amazing things now, like uh, Jose Andres's restaurants in DC. I would love to go there just because like, I know the people working there, but again, for me, like I do love the experience in the theater of, of some of these restaurants. But for me, it's like, if you're just using good ingredients and cook them right. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be anything fancy as long as it's just good ingredients treated right. I just, that's all I want. So like I could travel, you know, just travel around Europe. And if there's a little place that, you know, just has good ingredients. The chickens are running around outside and then you eat the chicken on the plate, right? Oh, that's what makes me happy right there. That's, I, I grew up with that. So instead of daycare growing up, I was, I went to an Amish farm because I grew up in an Amish country. So like I was just, I was around that all the time. They just made their own food. So I had nothing but good ingredients like my whole entire life. So like, yeah, just food like that. That's what makes me the happiest. Food
0: or drink guilty pleasure. Um, I think you kind of alluded to it, but is there anything that's uh, unhealthy, you know, but you just can't help yourself? I think you kind of mentioned pizza possibly, but. Shit.
1: Old fashions. Yum, 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 yum. Get in my belly. Uh, Old fashions are delicious. Ice cream to an extent. It's good. No, I got a guilty. Yep. Here it is. Yeah. Pastries. Pastries. Love me some pastries. I can eat pastries way too much. And there's a. New restaurant. It's the same group that does Harvest. It's a restaurant in Granville called Station. Their breakfast sandwich. I like. I deliver two wheels of cheese, and, and they pay me. And then slowly over the course of the next two weeks, I give all their money back to them. Ah, uh, I spent way too much money there, and that's just you know my busy lifestyle. But their honey vanilla latte with their bodega sandwich. And if I had a good workout, a pastry, ah, oh, man, shame on me, but I love every minute of it.
0: Favorite Instagram account you follow. So, you know, page that you never really seem to skip over, you know, and you come across it, you're like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Or you always kind of enjoy stuff
1: that they post. I'm not on Instagram very often. I just go down such a rabbit hole on stuff. Like I'm afraid, <laughs> but I mean, local people seeing what people do, just like general cheese Instagrams, especially cheese makers, because- while I went to class to make cheese, I learned how to make cheese still in a bubble, you know, for the most part, my own self-imposed bubble. So I'm now to a point where I've made cheese so much that if I see somebody else's process, you know, through like an Instagram account or something like that, I'm just like, Oh, 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 you know, like I just get all of these tips and like, I can, I can absorb those. But then the other thing, like following food accounts, I love to cook so much. And I have so little time to do it right. That Like, I like same thing with like watching like Top Chef and stuff like that. I just get so motivated and I get so pissed because I don't have time to do any of it. So like sometimes I just don't look Um, other than that. I mean, I love looking at like, you know, travel blogs and stuff because I work six days a week. So I have to vicariously get my brain out of Ohio every once in a while.
0: I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody was. Uh, If you were moment episode scene that always stands out to you about him. If you weren't, is there anybody else? who was a culinary personality, TV personality that you always kind of gravitated towards. I know you mentioned Alton Brown, so that might be the answer for this one.
1: I will go Jacques Pepin. And Julia Child, I mean, you can't have one without the other, but I'm I'm definitely going to say Jacques Pepin because like, when he was cooking, again, it's like just good techniques, good ingredients. And it wasn't anything fancy, but it was always just like such, such good food. That and... I mean, and I got a chance to like hang out with him for an afternoon at his house. He taught me how to pop a beer bottle top, like a champagne cork. That was amazing. Um, So I'm a little bit biased just because of his hospitality and him inviting me and some uh, two other people over. But uh, just that type of cooking, watching him cook. It's just so simple. Like that's that's what I just absolutely love. Where can people find you guys? Social media, website, plug everything. Black radish creamery, black radish creamery, black radish creamery. If you just look up black radish creamery, it'll probably pop up. Instagram, I believe it's like black dot radish dot creamery. Facebook is black radish creamery. Website, black radish creamery. So that's yeah, pretty. It, it it's it's pretty reliable to pop up for black radish creamery. And also, I gotta say, Stonewall Dairy on Instagram. I I think uh, the story behind the type of food that we make. Uh, you know, um, emotion is the number one seasoning by far being able to look at where our milk comes from and the story of Louie and now his daughter on the farm there and being able to see the farms, see the quality of life for the cows. I think that that definitely is part of the seasoning of our cheese that I would love for people to know more about as well. So Stonewall Dairy.
0: And then the downtown shop is open pretty much market hours, right? So I think they're open every day. Yep.
1: That is correct. That is correct. Yep. Farm store is open every day, basically dawn to dusk. Once we get into the the depths of winter, I mean, it'll be open a little bit later than dusk, but farmers markets as well, Worthington and Granville.
0: It's great product. It's great cheese. I mean, we lived downtown for a few years. It was always our place where we'd get cheese for making charcuterie boards and stuff like that. And the cool thing too, that I always enjoy is your staff is so knowledgeable that you can ask them for a recommendation—they don't point you just in one direction. They're like, "Well, this is something new that we have that's really interesting. If you're looking for something along this line, there's this." They're always super, you know, helpful too as well. Uh, if you have any questions about any of the cheeses or certain flavor profile, or if you're looking for something for a certain dish that you're making, they're always able to help everybody out. We we're always a sucker for it. There's the up at the counter at the one in downtown. There's always like uh, the leftover pieces. Of cheese where you could always grab one for like it's like a buck and you're like i've never had that cheese before so i'm gonna grab that and see what that is so we always do that too as well whenever we're down there and it's now that we're getting kind of back in the winter we start building out some uh some meat and cheese boards so we're looking forward to seeing what new stuff that you guys got and get back into cheese
1: our team's great it's nothing of any consequence or any real value is ever really made alone and in our team makes our value and we always we always told them i mean a lot of people come to us almost all of them have come to us like we don't know anything about cheese but we think it'd be fun i'm like that's fine as long as you have a good personality we can't teach that and we always just say don't bullshit somebody if you don't know an answer that's fine you can look it up and so we have all kinds of books and stuff there or they can always get a hold of me i don't have all the answers either but you know again it's that truth in food so that's that's what we always tell them Like. You know, just just be truthful with them. If you don't know an answer, look it up with them. Give them a couple options, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, our team is freaking amazing.
0: It's good stuff. We love it. We try and get it whenever we can. It'll be a little bit more challenging now that we moved out into the suburbs, but we still make it downtown and and in that area. So it's kind of still going to be our our go-to spot for cheese needs and everything. If you guys ever need anything from us feel free to reach out we try and support everybody as much as we can but otherwise uh you know this has been a goal to have a uh, cheesemaker and cheesemonger on the podcast so uh, i think people are really going to enjoy this episode and you know hopefully we'll be uh seeing you soon downtown at uh, the store there north market well hey really appreciate it i'll let you get back to uh making cheese and everything
1: but uh stay in touch awesome thank you so much for the opportunity I really appreciate it
0: Again, a big thanks to John for taking some time out of his day and coming on the podcast and just nerding out and chatting about cheese and the whole process of making it and how they got their business started and everything that goes into it and future plans, you know, stuff that they got in the works that they're working on, just talking about, you know, his experience in the business. I think again, it was super informative, super educational for me as somebody who knows a little bit more than the average person about cheese, but I'm by no means a cheese expert. You know, if somebody asked me, I could recommend a couple things here or there, but I wouldn't be able to break down, you know, 50 different types of cheese that you could choose from, like at their stand at the North Market. So, You know, if you get a chance to visit them at the North Market, it's an awesome setup that they have there now. They have a bunch of different products. They have a bunch of different accoutrements that go with it: crackers, mustards, pickles, olives, all that stuff. It's kind of like a one-stop shop for if you're making a charcuterie board. So, especially with you know, kind of winter, to me is like charcuterie season. Kind of have that stuff on hand, and you kind of pick at it on the weekends when there's like football and stuff on, and you don't really want to go outside because it's 20 degrees here, whatever. So it's always a good time uh when you can make it down there and and chat with their staff and everything you can also visit their little grab and go shop over in alexandria that they have too as well if you're out that way that's about you know 30 minutes east of of columbus kind of the 270 loop there um they're probably about 20 30 minutes from that um so again follow them on instagram at black radish creamery Uh, you can visit their website too as well kind of keep you in the loop for any future updates as they continue to work on their expansion process and everything that they got in the works too as well Uh, you can find them on a bunch of different restaurant menus Um, cheese gets incorporated in a bunch of different places you know we kind of highlighted some of them on the podcast too as well but um, a lot of the local restaurants use cheese that they make either if they have a charcuterie board or a meat or cheese board situation ginger rabbit has kind of both situations but some places just have one big one and you can find you know a lot of their products around town and most likely you've encountered it or seen it on the menu somewhere that you've been, you know, this year. So you can follow us on Instagram too, as well at Spoon Mob. Make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com and follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever your preferred podcast app or player is. So you always get the new episodes as they release. Uh, That is it for this week. If you are new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate you listening and continued listenership and supporting uh, the podcast. Continue to help spread the word. Uh, We always appreciate when we get new listeners and they're, hey, I heard about it from so-and-so, or hey, I heard you had this person on and and then I kind of went back through all these episodes and and stuff like that. So every week it gets better, you know, Uh, you go back and listen to some of the first episodes and maybe it's a little rough and trying to find, you know, format and everything, but they're still great episodes, still super informative. Uh, We've had some of those people back on the podcast. We're getting some of those people scheduled again too, as well as they have, you know, either moved to a new restaurant or opened a new restaurant, stuff like that. So We'll have uh, some repeat guests from time to time when they have some new stuff to kind of talk about, promote um, since the last time that they've been on. That is
1: it for this week. Appreciate everybody, and we will talk to you guys next week.